Well, welcome to the library talk on abuse in the church. And I uh, want to give you a little sense of the way our agenda is going to go here this morning. Uh, I'm going to do a very brief uh, intro, uh, for a professor brief anyway, and um, then I'm going to introduce our panelists, and then Brad is going to share a personal story, and Jeremy as well. And then after that, I will be asking them some questions, and then after that, if we have time, we'll have some question time for you all, but we must wrap up at 11, so we'll just see how that goes with respect to the audience questions. So let me uh, ask for the Father's help here, and we'll get rolling. Father, thank you for this morning. We are so grateful for your goodness and your kindness to us that we can be here together. Lord, we do pray for your blessing and your help. We pray that you would uh, fill us with your spirit, especially uh, Brad and Kristen and Jeremy. Uh, Lord, uh, we need your help. We do need wisdom that comes from above. We ask for this again. It's in the name of Christ, our Savior, that we pray. Amen. So I uh, thought some about us off here today, and I thought maybe uh, this uh, simple sentence is a good way to start. Um, um, God is love. Um, and this couldn't be if God wasn't three. Um, one God, we believe, three persons. Uh, so we serve a God who is thoroughly relational and always has been. Father, Son, Spirit, all perfectly, seamlessly connected, communicating. Perfectly, seamlessly, the only small group that's always gotten along. <laughs> and that's been going on forever. Um, and we're made like that. And we're made for that kind of perfect, seamless love among ourselves. Um, so it uh, kind of makes sense then that relationships are perhaps the most powerful force in the universe. For better and for worse. Um, and sin, the, the, the shattering of relational peace and of this kind of shalomic community, if I could create a word, that, that, that sin is almost as contagious as the love is, unfortunately. Um, so, very early uh, in the human story, whether you start with the evolutionary story or the biblical story in understanding humanity, very early violence enters the scene. And it's a terrible part of uh, some of your stories and some of our stories here. So, uh, domestic violence. How do those words ever get put together? Um, spousal battering. How do those words ever get put together? Child abuse. Sexual abuse. How did these words ever get together? So it's this, uh, this shattering of shalom, of perfect, the intended, uh, relational unity um, between us and with God um, that we're here to discuss today. 
and specifically want to discuss how we are dealing with violence and with abuse uh, in our families, uh, in our relationships, in our churches, and in our Baptist tribes. So that's what we're up to here today. Um, I want to introduce our panel, uh, and sitting next to me is Dr. Kristen Kellen, and she is uh, one of our professors of biblical counseling here at Southeastern, and also an absolutely incredible counselor, um, and uh, I can proudly say one of my uh, most incredible former students. So it's uh, really pleasing to introduce her for me. Uh, and next to Kristen is uh, Dr. Jeremy Pierre, and he is a professor of biblical counseling at the other Southern Baptist Seminary um, that is called Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, he is also the chair of the Department of Biblical Counseling and Family there at Southern, and also an executive pastor at Clifton Baptist Church in Louisville. And next to him is the illustrious Brad Hambrick, um, dot com, and... Um, Brad uh, is also uh, one of our professors here of biblical counseling and also an uh, absolutely incredible pastor of counseling at the summit and does some things that uh, I don't think any other pastor of counseling does that uh, God has uniquely gifted Brad. Um, so uh, so this, is, uh, this is us. This is our panel. Um, and my name is Michael Jordan. Um, <laughs> I'm a professor of biblical counseling here as well, Sam Williams. So, um, I uh, want to kick us off with some stories, uh, first by Brad and then by Jeremy. So we're going to make a transition here at this point and um, start with some questions. Um, and um, perhaps it's best uh, with the questions for us to, to kind of look in the mirror I think we're already doing that a little bit with each of your stories. Um, so the hashtag MeToo movement, uh, some of the high-profile um, uh, instances of, of abuse and mishandling of abuse uh, in our Baptist tribe. Um, and uh, so uh, with respect to, like I said, looking in the mirror, uh, uh, your churches, our churches, uh, this seminary, your seminary, um, and our Baptist tribe, um, any critiques or commendations? How are we doing? I don't think the guests should go first on that one. <laughs> I'll, I'll start and just give the simple, the easiest answer, and then let them feel the harder part of this. Uh, I, I will say that I appreciate that in the last year or two, couple of years, uh, this topic has come to light more clearly. So we have started to have more clear conversations, to your point, Jeremy, about we need to be talking about these things. Uh, and I would add to that, say we need to be speaking clearly and firmly uh, against abuse, that we should never in any sense condone it. And I think that's that's generally where we've gone. Uh, we haven't always handled it well, uh, but I'm, I'm thankful that we are at least having these conversations much more often than I feel like we were eight, ten years ago, by far. 
That's a good word. I, I, if, if you look at the overall response that we see in our convention, that we see from leaders of our churches and things like that, I actually think I've, I've been very encouraged at how strong and clear the statements against abuse have been. I'm, I'm very thankful. And I think that resonates with the, 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 the people in our pews. So I'm not, I don't think there's a lack of conviction on this at all. But if you're asking for a critique, this is, this is perhaps just my, me sitting in a seat as a guy who thinks a, lo- a lot about counseling and a lot about the practice and implementation of the high-level statements like, we need to care for abusers. Well, it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to actually do that and to have the knowledge necessary to do that well. And not just knowledge, but patience modeling for yourself what it means to have the types of relationships that build up, modeling for yourself the realization that if I have a greater degree of influence over a set of people, then my responsibility to serve them is also greater, never to extract from them. So we have to, I I guess what I'm saying is that I think that there is a critique. We need to more intentionally pursue the ability to implement what we ideally say ought to be done. Yeah. So, so it sounds like what what uh, Jeremy and Kristen are both saying is that uh, that we're we're at least doing okay with awareness uh, and recognition and more public acknowledgement and communication about this. The awareness of this as a real problem happening in our churches and our families has risen, and you're pleased with that, but. Jeremy's bringing up a concern that I think I'm going to package and then throw at, at, at Brad. And, but knowledge and skills aren't the same thing as awareness. Mm-hmm. Our awareness is maybe improving. I'm not sure I'd give us uh, an A or a B, but at least we get a C plus, that's my opinion. Um, but what about knowledge and skills of how to help Brad, how how are we doing in that department? Yeah. So, walking into that from the question, uh, Judith Herman, uh, who is a, a secular counselor in the area of trauma and abuse, uh, she says all all trauma ask or all an abuser ask uh, is that we hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. Uh, if if nothing is done. It is the abused who suffer. Uh, and so uh, whenever an abuse victim goes from isolated to supported, uh, I think we should rejoice and be relieved there is hope. Uh, I am always, almost always equally grieved when things go public because it's one thing to go from isolated to supported. It's another thing to go from isolated into the public view. That's interesting. Um, to where then that individual who just went from isolated to under so many eyes and so many agendas with their stories, uh, they have to process being known by a few to many so quickly uh, that uh, that can be exceedingly difficult. And lots of confusion comes in. And this is where in church where we're often a part of various culture wars uh, and we're trying to be salt and light within an overall community and culture. Uh, 
I fear at times we can start to try to balance out a culture in a case. And that's never good. Whenever we have the opportunity to care for a given individual, uh, we need to care for that individual and not try to balance whatever we think is one, distorted one way or another in a culture. Uh, and in the conversations, it, that the conversation is happening breaks the hear no evil, hear no evil dynamic. Uh, clarity on, okay, what does it look like? When we hear abuse, are we asking the right questions? Because from my perspective, ethical mistakes from a pastoral care and counseling perspective, ethical mistakes usually don't happen because we ask the right questions and we get the wrong answers. Uh, they happen because we don't see the question that needs to be asked. We care based upon the question that pops in our head and then we realize two weeks, three months later that, ah, there was important stuff that we didn't think to ask that we didn't do. So as church leaders, when we hear abuse, do we hear big sin or do we hear crime? That's going to take us in two different directions. Now, hopefully we hear both. Uh, and we recognize that there's a legal jurisdiction and there is a pastoral care jurisdiction uh, and we begin to think through what does it look like uh, to do excellent pastoral care for everybody involved while cooperating um, with the Romans 13 jurisdiction where God has said when, when this gets to the point that Christian or not, people can tell this is wrong and it needs to be addressed, uh, that, that we can be highly skilled in how we engage with social workers and CPS and law enforcement and recognizing there's going to be times as a church when we defer and we place some pastoral care elements on pause uh, because some of the investigative matters need to go first. And that's not putting God second. That's not putting the church second. It's allowing the people that God said, I need them to run point on this, Romans 13, to do that from a legal perspective. And there's other forms of pastoral care we can provide until those conclusions come. And those are the areas that um, I think there is a lot of work to be done to think well. Uh, and it's the kind of work that has to be done proactively. There has to be thought before the moment of crisis. Because when you hit crisis, you've got a law enforcement officer doing what they think needs to be done. You've got child protective services doing what they need to be done. Um, and everybody's in their jurisdictional niches. And we would love to think that the circles of care, that they overlap like this, it's much more like a Venn diagram. And each person who's involved is going to be doing, from their perspective, what's at the center of each of their jurisdictions. And when those don't line up, if we haven't thought through what it looks like to be cooperative in that kind of setting, it's going to feel competitive because urgency doesn't let us have those patient conversations that we need to have. Good. Thank you. So, um, so much for looking in the mirror a little bit here. Let, let's look through the window. Uh, Popular media uh, and the mental health profession. Mm -hmm. I know those are different things, mm -hmm. but so there's a two-pronged here question. 
As you uh, have uh, looked at and analyzed the popular media conversation here, uh, whether that's CNN or Twitter, um, or the mental health profession, Brad just cited one of the uh, primary uh, experts in the world of abuse and trauma, Judith Herman. Um, as you look at the popular media or the mental health profession, what would be your commendations? Uh, or what might be your critiques or concerns? Well, a commendation is there's a, there's a deep sense that people need to be honored as people. And, they, and so what that means is there's an exploration and a willingness to explore the nuances of the dynamic between an abuser and one who's abused and the effects that, that abuse has on the person abused. So there's just tons of effort and study given to that, and I think we all need to say that's a good thing. Like if it was the opposite and nobody wanted to explore those things, that would that that should alarm us about the society we live in. So that's a that's a good thing. That's very commendable. I think in terms of a critique, just from a I think from a biblical framework, you can totally miss that the dynamic between an abuser and one abused is the dynamic between two image bearers of God and you're, it, what, what's ultimately being displayed there is a false testimony of who God is and who he made us to be as, as functioning in his image. So it lies, it's a false testimony and it, and it spreads chaos rather than peace, right? It spreads unrighteousness rather than righteousness because it lies about any of number of things, like male-female relationships. Oftentimes it's male-female, male-to-female abuse. It lies about the nature of authority. It lies about what love is supposed to be. And so you have these, these false testimonies of what God made this beautiful creature called man and woman, what, what he made them to do and how he made them to function. It, it just spreads a false understanding and a false way of experiencing. So um, when you miss that, when you miss that, you, you, don't, you don't then point people to the ultimate solution for that problem, which is redemption through Jesus Christ, right? It's a renewed heart that now I have been, I have been forgiven of what's not like God in me, my sin, so that now I'm freed to be like God in the way I respond. And so I can move from no longer responding like this to responding like this. Now I'm talking ultimates here, right? There's tons of nuance in terms of how that works. But, but you ask for a critique, and the critique is they miss the main, the main hope of change. It's not a good idea to exclude God from the human formula. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, would, I would agree with all of that. I would uh, add as well on something you mentioned earlier, uh, remembering, too, that the abuser... Uh, is an image bearer, and that necessitates dignity and honor and respect for that individual as an image bearer. I think sometimes our culture has a tendency to uh, assign a label or an identity to uh, an abuser, and that, that defines who they are. Uh, but who they are, to your point, they're an image bearer. Uh, and so despite the great sin that has happened, we don't want to minimize that, uh, they're still worthy of dignity. As an image bearer, we hope and, and move towards their redemption in that, to your point. So I think we the, the pairing of 
putting a label and identity on an abuser and also dehumanizing sometimes at some point or making them less than. I don't think either of those are honoring. Sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. When I think about media, I think about what they can do and then the limitations that come with that. Mm -hmm. Media is a mass communication. So they can, they can put a spotlight on ignorance. Um, and at one level, uh, I thank God that there's a lot of ignorance about abuse. Uh, that there's plenty of people that that is not a part of their story uh, and that there is a innocence that comes with ignorance mm -hmm. that can be a blessing for those who haven't had that experience mm. but it can be a very isolating curse and the media can do a great job of that but because it's mass communication it can only generalize yeah. uh, it can't particularize to the nuance of how to care for a given person in a given situation because that's not their role. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if we had a greater appreciation for the strengths and weaknesses of just what you can do through mass communication, I think we could eat the fish and spit out the bones better. Uh, from the mental health provider, um, having spent uh, about a decade in a private practice vocational counseling setting where uh, my livelihood was 30 plus hours a week of direct care. Uh, I will speak to a temptation that I would see for that individual uh, that I speak from within that experience because it was a real challenge for me. Mm. Yeah. And it's cynicism. Mm. Yeah. It, it is so hard when you are dealing with the most broken of situations for the vast majority of your vocational hours. And that's what you hear. The ability to think that all men aren't pigs and that all churches aren't completely... Because nobody comes to counseling to tell you about their good day. <laughs> if something was handled well, you don't hear about it. That means counselors are not optimists. Um, <laughs> we hear the worst about the worst when it wasn't handled well. Um, and that sense of waving a flag for us to see... That is their majority experience. Yeah. Uh, for the social worker who, when a church handles a case well, not in terms of not doing mandated reporting, but it, it just gets to them differently than when it's that case that really sticks in their memory because it was they came to their pastor and the advice wasn't good and then it was another five, seven, ten years of this person living in that situation and that becomes the ingrained story. So I think when we understand what that mental health professional does, we can approach uh, some of the hesitancy and maybe even skepticism that they would have towards the church in these situations uh, from a different light. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, so much for the softball questions. Um, <laughs> Over softball? <laughs> hardball questions here. Um, So what is abuse anyway? We're all sinners. Uh, I've been married 30 years. I am sure there is no person that Sam Williams has sinned against more than Mindy Williams. Um, where is the line drawn? Uh, defining abuse, um, we use that word a ton these days, and, and that's good. Awareness has been raised. This is a category, but 
how do you distinguish between, like Chris Mole says, you know, when you hear hoofbeats, you should usually think horses. And yet sometimes it's a zebra. It's not a horse. And so how do you differentiate between normal, everyday spousal squabbles, and we're both centers here, and abuse? Mm. <laughs> Talk somebody important one. Um, it, yeah, when I think about that question, I think it's important the language I would use to think spectrum, not buckets. When you have buckets, there's clearly defined edges, there's a gap, and there's a new bucket. Uh, when you have a spectrum, it's one continuity, and you're crossing particular thresholds uh, so that when you look at a rainbow in the middle of a stripe, uh, it's kind of clear when it's red, kind of clear when it's blue, it's clear when it's purple. When those changes happen, it's not as clear. And so when we talk about the various forms that abuse can take, uh, we are, I mean, part of just being humble is to say, I live on that same spectrum. And that, that recognizes I'm not talking to somebody who is different from me. I am not talking to somebody who is capable of things that I'm not capable of. Um, now, some of those markers along that spectrum, it, uh, that's where uh, there can be lots of debates about what those best demarcations are. Uh, a few that come to mind that this is rudimentary and introductory because it's what we can do in a panel discussion. Uh, we, we might say one of those markers is intentionality. Um, that when the harm done, and in the technical term of abuse, intentionality is very much implied. Uh, but great damage can be done without intentionality. And it doesn't make it less damaging. So another line that we can draw uh, is effect. Uh, and that you know, we could say, was it intended to be abusive? Was the intend to harm? Well, that's one question. How much harm was done? Um, how much harm fits under kind of garden variety? This is uh, as two fallen, broken people living in the same home, sharing every earthly possession uh, that happens. Um, maybe one, another line of demarcation that might be less obvious uh, is narrative. How freely and accurately can we talk about it? Um, I, I'm going to use a phrase here that's because I'm from Kentucky, uh, so hear it in a very non-technical way. Sorry. I'll translate. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of the crazy making of abuse is the way that it's talked about afterwards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the blame shifting, those kinds of things where, it, where you begin to wonder, was, was this really my fault? Was it really that bad? Um, it, and so any of those variables, uh, if we're thinking in terms of a soundboard and we have these different uh, aspects that can take it into that decibel range where this is chronically unhealthy enough that it moves from dishonoring to dangerous. Because in some ways that's what we're saying by the difference between garden variety offense and abuse is we're moving from dishonoring to dangerous. Mm -hmm. okay. 
Uh, mm -hmm. Those are some of the types yeah. of variables that I don't want you to feel bound by those. He said there was three. He gave us an outline. He didn't alliterate. Uh, but um, that is how to think yeah. more than it is what to think. Yeah. So to add complexity to that in the terms of the how to think, when you think of spectrum, there's actually a couple different spectrums you could measure this by, yes, right? It could be in the intensity spectrum, you know, where on one end you have like a closed-fisted punch. On the other end, you have sort of, uh, or maybe in the middle, physical intimidation. And then maybe on the other end, there's threats, you know what I mean, or words that imply or something like that. So it, it's a spectrum of intensity. You also have to think of a spectrum of historicity or frequency, right? right? Because what's interesting is you can have less intense abusive dynamics that stretch over years, mm -hmm. and that has a really mm -hmm. significant effect. I like that line of demarcation. You know, you, you, you can have that as a spectrum too, the effect it's actually having on the individual. So, so again, we're not trying to confuse you by saying these things, but, but it, it's, it's, this is a comment on how to think about these things. One other thing I'll say to sort of, so there's the spectrums, but if you back up, what am I measuring? At least a way to think about abuse, I think, in, in, in citing uh, Matthew 18, 6. We always think of Matthew 18 as church discipline. Did you know that there's more to Matthew 18 than that? When you start out the chapter, this is the part where Jesus is just saying, look, uh, if you cause one of these little ones in me to sin, it would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and you'd be thrown into the sea. So, so the, the, the language Jesus uses there is the same language we pull our word scandalize from. So, so this idea of causing this little one to stumble or to sin. What it's acknowledging is that one with greater influence can act upon one with lesser influence in such a way that their capacities are hindered. Like the, the options they have to act are shrunken to a provocation, right, to do something bad or to do something wrong. And so I think that's a good way to think of what abuse is, is I think it's when an abuser acts, one image bearer, one image bearer of God acts on another image bearer in such a harmful way that their capacities of personhood are, are, are shrunk, they're, 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 they're limited. And so then it goes into a lot of what Brad was referring to is their thinking gets shrunk, their, their perspective, their ability to act, their ability to not respond in fear to certain stimuli, the, the, the ability to feel freedom, you know, to, 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 of will or something like that. It's hindered. That, that's, that's actually a good thing to think about. I think it's a biblical understanding of abuse that then you can kind of measure along these spectrums. And the tough thing is there's no chapter and verse in the Bible that says, okay, when this gets tripped and this gets tripped and this gets tripped, then we use this word abuse. But until this get, those get tripped, we don't use the word abuse. It's, it's, a, it's, an inter, it's a subjective interpretive process. Yeah, and, and what comes to my mind as you go to that passage at the beginning of Matthew 18 is to contextualize that a little bit, is when the power differential is large, yeah. then the person with more power has much greater responsibility and therefore then can do much greater harm. Yeah. Therefore, if you cross over that line, you might as well have a big anvil tied around your head and get thrown in the sea, Jesus says. Yeah. That's what you would deserve. You, in other words, you are responsible for the effect that you have yeah. on another person's right. yeah. humanities yeah. Yeah. capacities. Yeah. 
And, and I think what adds to this complexity as well is we oftentimes think of abuse in physical terms, but those spectrums exist for different categories, physical abuse, uh, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, um, spiritual abuse. Right. Uh, and so even when we're thinking about these spectrums, are these things happening in multiple categories? Because probably so. In some form or fashion, if there's physical abuse, there's probably also manipulation, uh, psychological abuse, or demeaning emotionally. Uh, and so we even have layers yeah. to our spectrums and that. Yeah, and as holistic beings, it's all related. Right. You can't right. have one without the other to some degree. Yeah. 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 And Go ahead, just Brett. to key off of something that Jeremy was saying, when he said we don't want to overcomplicate this, we're not trying to make it complex. I think a dynamic that we have to recognize, when we oversimplify, we empower the abuser. Mm -hmm. When we bring reductionistic, simplistic categories to a complex experience, we are giving an advantage to the person who holds that greater sense of power in that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so there is a sense in which we have to be more sophisticated in our thought about something yeah. that is more complex in its dynamics. So, Brad, one of the things that you mentioned uh, as we started here with the questions was that uh, sometimes, even though we may be aware of abuse as a category, that our knowledge or skills in even asking the right questions uh, is limited. And so we really need to learn how to ask certain questions that naturally some of us, if you don't have some training, some experience in this realm, you might not ask. Um, so um, uh, let me throw another hardball question at you here. Uh, should a victim or a woman, which is often the case because of the power uh, structures in our societies, um, always be believed? I don't mind fielding this one. <laughs> That's good. Okay. I, I, I was hoping we had somebody with enough estrogen to handle this. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, so my assertion, and I'm, I'm willing to be uh, corrected or added to here, uh, is generally speaking, yes. Uh, I think the last statistic I read was that less than 2% of uh, abuse accusations are false. Uh, and now the, the instances of abuse that aren't reported is tremendously higher. Uh, so those separate categories, but categories. Uh, so generally, my, my assertion is yes, that if there is an accusation of abuse, uh, I am at least giving her the benefit of the doubt and asking lots of questions. Now, I sometimes think, though, that we falsely equate believing her with taking immediate uh, action. Uh, now, there's a lot of wisdom that goes into that. Please hear me there. Uh, but I think that by believing her, we affirm uh, her situation, her perception, her reality, and at least we walk through understanding what's going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, so when you say believing the victim, that's where my mind goes, not to a woman comes into my office and I immediately call the police, mm -hmm. uh, but a help me understand, tell me your story, what is happening, um, that is believing her, and that's affirming for her. Uh, now also understanding that for anyone in an abusive situation, their, uh, their choice to disclose that, uh, that's a tremendous choice for them, uh, and it's very difficult for them. Uh, and so scary. Want, it is, it is. And so, and to Brad, you, you made the point earlier of sometimes it goes from <clears throat> one or, or no one knowing to a few people to it gets blown up. That's, that can be terrifying, mm -hmm. right? 
so, so yes on that. Let me speak on a kind of side topic as well. Uh, most of my experience in counseling has been with children who have been abused. Uh, now, most of these children that I have experience with don't use that word abuse. But the way that they're describing these things are clearly abusive. Uh, so, yes, I, if a child is disclosing to me that such and such is happening, I'm believing them unless I see evidence otherwise and at least asking questions yeah. uh, to affirm yeah. that. So generally we should believe them. Mm-hmm. And the data, I could cite some other studies, do indicate that it's much more likely to be true when somebody claims, mm-hmm. whether they use the words or not, right. to be abused, that they have been, than it is that it's false mm-hmm. uh, so yeah. well, and in the way that you set this up referencing do we know what questions to ask in that aspect of mm-hmm. fear that you were alluding to it is one thing to say <clears throat> do we believe them it's another thing to say what does that look like right in the because if you think about as we were talking about that fear coming in this person doesn't necessarily have the categories to talk about their experience this is the greatest risk that they have probably taken in their life. Mm -hmm. They are probably not in the most linear, sequential frame of mind as we start this conversation. Mm -hmm. And if we are thinking, uh, and yes, we should think in terms of legality and protocols and those kinds of things, but if that's the only thing that we're uh, thinking about, we are covering ourselves more than we are caring for them. Mm -hmm. And so... Part of how we hear and how we believe is being skilled at helping this person relax. You're taking a good step. This is wise. We can take whatever time that we need. Nothing's going to happen that you're not going to know about what it is. And my experience, you were talking about most of your experience with children. I don't, I haven't been trained to work with children, so most of my experience is with adults. Mm-hmm. And the how we listen, because you can do the right thing from a legal perspective if you're just in that law enforcement circle saying what's right in the middle of that in such a clumsy way mm-hmm. right. that you don't make the news, but you don't help this person. And they become less likely to allow themselves to be cared for by the body of Christ who should be a refuge. Um, And so how we hear, what that conversation is like, being able to get this person to where they, again, there's so much blame shifting, so much distorted narrative, so much that that they don't necessarily have words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not even not using the word abuse, but just for the the tactics and the dynamics mm-hmm. that are involved and especially if that's a woman and you're a man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. That the how is so important would be my yeah. summary yeah. statement. Okay, good. Um so um uh, let me kind of shift gears here. Um Redemptive suffering is a, a biblical category I think we probably would all believe. Um, mm-hmm. Jesus was the suffering servant. Um, and um, we are called to follow in his footsteps and we, we are told we shall suffer. Um, uh, we're called to love our enemies. <clears throat> we're called to overcome evil with good. 
Um, we have categories like uh, self-denial, denying ourselves, dying to self. Um, many of the pastors that I talk to, uh, early in their uh, awareness-raising process, ask me that question. But what about redemptive service? But what about loving your enemies? But what about overcoming evil with good here? Um, how should those quite obvious biblical categories of redemptive suffering, overcoming evil with goodness, and loving enemies, how should that, how does that enter into your counsel? You've all counseled victims. Does that enter into counseling? If so, what does that look like? I think, I think really good, strong, solid biblical themes should never be used exclusively as if that's all the Bible says yeah. on any given topic. Yeah. Yeah. And so that is an absolutely true category. We have, to, we have to suffer as a display of our patience with others who sin against us. That is an absolute true category. But there are other categories that are absolutely true that are essential to involve in the counseling of a victim of abuse. Like the two that come to mind, and there's, there's many more, right? But two that come to mind are, first, the, the God cares deeply about justice for those who are oppressed. And the practice of that biblical quality, that, that characteristic of God in that situation means the abuse that's occurring from an abuser to a victim is not just a matter of personal offense, okay? The, the forgiveness aspect will cover that part of the personal offense, and we, we'll work through that. But, but it doesn't cover the justice issue. It's, an, it's allowing an unjust situation to perpetuate to just say, hey, you need to forgive them and you need to you know, suffer for Jesus and, just, mm-hmm. and, and allow the situation to remain. Which the, isn't good for the abuser either. It's not good for, mm-hmm. it's unloving to the abuser. That's, exa- that's where I, exactly where I was going. It's the most mm-hmm. unloving thing for the abuser because what you're doing is you're allowing him to perpetuate the illusion that, that he's living in. That he's not do he's not that bad he's not doing things that bad he can be good with God he can be a good citizen he can be a good church member blah 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 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so so that's one key theme another key biblical element that just comes to mind is the stewardship element of we are it is incumbent upon a steward to be found faithful with what they're entrusted with and I and 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 the victim is entrusted with her body her mind. Her personhood, right? She's cre- that the, the the image of God is a very right. precious right. privilege, right. and so you have to keep in mind if I am putting that in a situation because I'm too scared to move out of it, or I'm too, or or sometimes there can be elements of like, I'll I'll just be the good person and continue to receive these things. You're actually being a poor steward of what God finds precious, and that's you, right? And Think about what you're displaying for any children observing. Mm-hmm. Think about what you're displaying if you hear about abuse that a younger lady in the church is going through and, and she talks to you and you share with mm-hmm. her your mm-hmm. experience of how you're mm-hmm. dealing with it. It just it perpetuates something that God says is not only not ideal, that God hates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So uh, I'll maybe contextualize quickly uh, to a situation there where Let's assume for the moment that the question that how that's being raised is from the abuse victim themselves. And it's their sincere faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
they love this person. Mm -hmm. You don't get that deep and allow somebody to treat you that way if you don't love them deeply. Uh, and they want to be Christ-like. And so it's not their church imposing that on them, but they come to you yeah. and they're bringing, isn't this what I'm supposed to do? Yeah. It's personal <laughs> conviction right. for them. And, and it, affirming everything that you said, but it, there's times when if, if you try to change where they're at by saying, no, 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 it, you destroy their faith at the same time that you protect their person and it kind of comes crashing down. It, I would say the most loving thing that you can do for a destructive person is to limit the amount of destruction they can do. That is good. That is loving. And so oftentimes uh, the mentality of that person who, who is trying to use redemptive suffering as the exclusive category by which they biblically understand their experience of abuse what I would say is they, they get locked in Romans, the end of Romans 12, they never make it to Romans 13. Mm -hmm. uh, the end of Romans 12 is an interpersonal strategy. Uh, that's where it's if somebody's... Overcoming evil with goodness. And right. It's kind of the Proverbs, uh, a gentle answer turns away wrath. I'm going to keep doing mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. In a destructive moment, that may be the wisest, best thing that you have available if you respond hostily to a hostile person who is stronger than you are it's not going to go well for you so it's not bad advice it's actually very good advice it just what we recognize is that the only time lapse between the end of Romans 12 and the beginning of Romans 13 was Paul dipping a quill and keep writing he wasn't writing a book he was writing a letter it was a continuous thought he said interpersonally this is in the moment best way to do that Right after that, continuous thought, and there's certain things that cross a line that if you need a restraining order, get one. God gave the authorities what they needed for a reason um, that at this loving justice kind of level, Paul went right from one into the other and felt like this completed that. Uh, by virtue of him keeping writing, the end of Romans 12 was not enough by itself. It needed Romans 13 or it was incomplete. And so, yeah, it, I want to honor the preciousness of that faith that is willing to suffer whatever we need to suffer in Jesus' name if it's going to have a redemptive good. Mm -hmm. But then also extend it to where the most loving thing you can do is limit the amount of damage that's done. Uh, and let's honor the full counsel of what God says. I don't have to get ahead of you. Uh, it, and that's where the patience comes in and bringing them to the point because a, the most dangerous time for that victim of abuse is in that interval when they first leave. Uh, and some of that is the reactivity of the abuser. Some of that is the kind of wishy-washiness of I'm not sure in the back and forth. And so whatever we do, let's do well. To where they don't feel like there's a right answer to this, uh, as if we get the right answer and everything's going to be uh, perfect uh, in an abusive situation. Uh, it's not going to be that way. What we can do is take a wise journey. We're not looking for a right answer in this situation mm -hmm. and kind of bring them to that wisdom perspective and seeing that full counsel there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the only thing that I would tack on, I think you guys are hitting on it, uh, is, is understanding 
the full counsel in the sense of suffering as well. So although the scriptures clearly speak to how we are to respond to suffering and what the Lord does through suffering, uh, the Lord does not delight in our suffering. He doesn't delight in the effects of sin on his image bearers. Uh, and so I think we have to bring that in as well to, to encourage a victim and say, this is not God's will. Uh, and, and he does not delight in your suffering. Uh, so we can move them. It, it is not wrong to try to move out of suffering. <laughs> uh, that, that's something we do in all other realms of life. So, so understanding that properly as well, alongside all of these themes that we've talked about, uh, is important. We don't suffer for the sake of suffering. God uses it and God allows it for a purpose, but it's not a good thing inherently because it's a result of sin. We want to redeem them from that. Well, God help us, right? God help yeah. us all. And uh, I think God helped you guys. I, I threw some pretty good hardballs, didn't I? And I think they hit every single one. So I'm going to have to go practice my pitching. And hopefully they'll invite us back sometime and we can, we can do this again. Um, but I really do want to thank you. I want to thank Dougald uh, and Jason, our librarians here, uh, for doing this. Um, and uh, I want to ask Kristen to close us in prayer. Sure. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you had created all things good, that you are a good God, you are a loving Father, you are kind to your children. Father, and it grieves us that we even have to have this conversation about abuse because we shouldn't, um, because of sin, Lord, but we know that you are going to redeem your creation and redeem your people, and so, Lord, we know that this is a temporary conversation, and we're thankful for that. We're thankful for what you did through Jesus Christ. I thank you for the hope that you give us and the word that you give us in your word, Lord. I pray that you would lead us as we seek to minister in these sorts of situations, that you would give us wisdom and clarity of thought. Father, that your spirit would lead us in that. Father, we thank you again for who you are, for what you've done for us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.